Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Joan of Navarre. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor reviewing all the queens and prince consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. And uh, today we're starting the next little mini-series, which will consist of the Lancastrian consorts, uh, Catherine of Valois and Margaret of Anjou, who will be uh, following. But today it's Joan of Navarre, or uh, sometimes Joanna of Navarre. I'm not really sure uh, if there's an official one. I went with Joan, uh, who is the queen consort of Henry IV. This is getting inexcusable now, Graham. That, Graham, that's definitely late enough in history for us to at least know what her name is. Yeah, I don't know if it's like a linguistic thing or some countries would sort of naturally use Joanna. You know, imagine if we didn't know... Imagine if we found out that John was never called John. He was called Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> it's still weird, isn't it? I still think like we're doing the women down here at this point in history. Well, that's something we can ask. One of the uh, interviews we got lined up will be with uh, Dr. Ellie Woodake, who's writing uh, a book of uh, Joan of Navarre, so we oh, can right. ask her. Okay. <laughs> Not that we haven't done her research, but what's her <laughs> name? <laughs> uh, before we get on to Joan, uh, though, we need to have a little celebration, as this is our 200th episode. Sort of good. Okay, I... not a big celebration, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, only 200. Well, it's our 200th episode on the main, i.e. the free feed, but by incredible coincidence, we've also released exactly 100 bonus podcasts. Really? So that means it's both our 200th podcast, but also overall our 300th podcast. So what you're saying is, this is only two-thirds of us. Indeed. So if you want to gain access to that other 100 uh, episodes of bonus content, you can join the Privy Council by supporting us on www.patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. I, I can't move on, Graham, without bit, uh, acknowledging how much that sounded like a sales pitch without us ever even discussing that we were going to do that. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I largely knew what I was going to do, but <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that you were going to segue so perfectly for me. <laughs> <laughs> It's always like, you've been doing this for ten, no, 11 years and know me well enough to know exactly how I'll respond to you. You're playing me like a fiddle here, guys. It's subliminal advertising for your own products. Uh, anyway, uh, well done to us. 200 main episodes, 300 episodes overall. But we're not here to talk about us. We're here to talk about Joan of Noir. Biography. 
So, Joan of Navarre was born uh, in 1368 in Pamplona, the uh, capital of the small Spanish kingdom of Navarre. So that's the same uh, place, of course, as Berengaria, who's the consort to Richard the Lionheart. Oh, I didn't think you were going to say that. I thought you were going to say same place that they did the bull running. Is that That's, the same that, I guess that would be what it would be most uh, famous for today, yeah. yeah. Uh, and she's of very impressive royal lineage. Uh, the daughter of King Charles II of Navarre and the French princess uh, Joan of Valois, who's the daughter of John II, King of France. Mm-hmm. Uh, and through her mother, she's also descended from the imperial, like the Holy Roman Empire, uh, the imperial royal family, making her a first cousin once removed from Anne of Bohemia as Richard II's first queen. So, a bit of a catch. Well, indeed, there's more on there, because through her father, she's descended from Jean de Navarre, the Queen Regnant of Navarre, who married Philip IV of France and was the mother of Isabella of France, as well as three French kings, and another Queen Regnant of Navarre. So she's got two Queen Regnants of Navarre, two kings and one Queen of France, all in the last hundred years. She sounds unbearable, Graham. Imagine at a dinner party, <laughs> uh, the name-dropping that would go on. So, uh, sadly, Joan's uh, mother died in 1373 uh, when Joan was uh, only just a small child and her father never remarried. And uh, nicknamed Charles the Bad, he probably was not the best of uh, role models for the young Joan. Uh, Duplicitous and scheming, he regularly changed sides during the Hundred Years' War uh, to gain power and influence in France before ultimately losing everything he'd gained in 1378. Uh, Throughout all this time, Navarre was uh, neglected, really, as her father kept his family mostly in France. Uh, And indeed, the French regents uh, were, at the time, were her maternal uncles. So she probably spent her formative years in Paris developing a sophisticated taste in fashion and high living. So in a way, she's more French than she is Spanish. Hmm. Okay. No, but I mean, at this time, I sort of... They're all so mixed up, aren't they? Mm. By the way, when you said her maternal uncle, um, I heard that as her maternal uncle. Her maternal. <laughs> <laughs> she was very close to her maternal. <laughs> oh, dear, silly. Um, and she is affected by her father's uh, machination. So uh, she was actually technically taken hostage in Normandy in 1381 by Charles's enemies as a security for his good behaviour. Oh, yeah, they did that, didn't they? That's the thing. Uh, but again, as we said, given that the people in charge of France are her family, you know, pretty it's comfortable a, existence, really. Yeah. Um, as the daughter of a scheming king, uh, her immediate destiny is always going to be a diplomatic marriage porn. Mm. Uh, initially she was betrothed to the heir of Castile in 1380 so that's obviously the neighbours to Navarre but uh, that doesn't come to anything so a formal marriage agreement is reached with Duke John IV of Brittany in 1386 well this must go south I know that much Uh, well no it does take place so uh, Joan is 18 years old at the time John 47 yeah, but at least she's 18. We've seen some horrifying ones earlier. At least she is 18, but still 30 years her senior. Um, her father, Charles, would have been hoping that the Alliance would bring him some crucial support in his French ambitions, whilst John, in Brittany, uh, doesn't have any children despite two previous marriages. So at 47, he's obviously pretty desperate to sire an heir. Mm. Mm. So they get married, and despite the age gap, they have a very successful relationship with nine children coming in the space of 10 years. Wow. Right, so I got that totally wrong. This did go very well then. Very well indeed. Um, Obviously, this has a certain amount of limitation on what she can do as Duchess of Brittany because she's basically just being pregnant all the time. 
Yeah. yeah. Uh, but still, she does become an increasingly trusted advisor to her husband. Uh, she intercedes to stay his hand when dealing with French ambassadors and writes on his behalf to King Richard II of England uh, regarding English lands that he'd lost because uh, due to his earlier marriages, he was actually the Earl of Richmond. Oh, right. Oh, he had lost as in her mm. husband rather than, yeah, Richard. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, so in terms of the going south, John is older than her by 30 years, as uh, we said. So he dies on the 1st of November 1399 when his son and successor, John V, is not quite 10 years old. Oh, dear. Okay, but her son. Her son as well, yes. Yeah. Um, and as such, Joan is made regent for her son. So she basically rules Brittany in his stead. This is the perfect uh, start for a Rex Factor consort. Mm. Given her uh, her background, her yeah. lineage, and a sort of doing an apprenticeship, yeah. and then being actually moving up a step to do uh, to be regent as well. I'm expecting good things. Well, yes, it's a perfect start for a uh, Rex Factor consort, except for the inconvenient fact that she's not actually uh, an English consort. She's the Duchess of Brittany. Mm. Yeah, that's less good. And, you know, she seems to have done a pretty good job as regent of Brittany, and she could have lived there very comfortably. Uh, but it seems that she had a grander prize in mind. Uh, just over a month before Joan's husband died, there was also a changing of the guard in England as Henry Bolingbroke overthrew his cousin Richard II, thus becoming King Henry IV, the first Lancastrian right. king. Um, he uh, had been married as well to a woman called Mary de Bowen, but she died a few years earlier after having numerous children, including four sons. So... Strictly speaking, Henry, like Joan, neither of them really need to remarry. They've both got children, they've both had their marriages, and they've both got uh, pretty strong roles now to lead out. But just a few months after John's death, Henry and Joan are discussing getting married. Do they know each other before? They do know each other before. We okay. don't know for certain when they met, but they both attended Richard II and Isabella of Valois' wedding in 1396, which took place in France. Um, Henry stayed in France for a month afterwards, so presumably they had plenty of time to see each other and must have made quite a strong impression on each other. Yeah. Huh. That's rather nice. Hmm. So in 1400, Joan wrote to Henry, going well beyond the norms of uh, diplomatic niceties in her expression of concern and affection to him. Since I am desirous to hear of your good estate, I pray you, my most dear and honoured lord and cousin, that it would please you very often to let me know the certainty of it, for the very great joy and gladness of my heart. For every time that I can hear good news of you, it rejoices my heart very greatly." Johanna of Babylon, who is going over to you, can tell you more fully whom it please you to have recommended in the business on which she is going over. And if anything that I can do over here will give you pleasure, I pray you to let me know it, and I will accomplish it with a very good heart, according to my power. That is raunchy stuff there. Indeed. Uh, so, Johanna of Babylon is one of Joan's ladies, and her business was almost certainly to gauge Henry's attitude uh, about a marriage between uh, the two of them. Uh, and Henry's reaction was obviously sufficiently positive that Joan then sent her Welsh servant, Anthony Rees, to England to commence formal negotiations. That's... It's really nice, actually. It's a complete... Uh, it's... Um it's just a later in life love match. There's no, uh, there's no pressure on either of them for, hmm. for diplomacy or or for children or anything. I mean, you really? think when last time with Isabella Valois, we had a girl who wasn't yet ten years old, married yeah, this a man whole, in his thirties. It's yeah, a hot house of politics and pressure for 
babies and blah, it's just like plenty of fish or something. Hmm. Now, it's all very lovely, but it did have to be done incredibly secretively because at this point, England and France on the verge of war. Richard II had uh, married the French king's daughter. So when Henry deposes Richard, he's also deposing oh, as queen yes. the daughter of the king of France. So France uh, don't recognise Henry as king at this point. So the countries are on the verge of war. And she is related to the French. She's indeed. She? So, as we said, her sort of maternal uncles are basically the ones running the country. She's very closely linked to the French royal family. So Henry's got to explain to his subjects why he's planning to marry a largely French princess, whilst Joan has got to explain to her family why she's going to take her second cousin's crown. Oh, awkward. Oh, but, I mean, but I mean, it throws everything up in the air, doesn't it? She And... It's fascinating to see where all the bits will land, Mm. but they do actually like each other at the same time. Yeah. Another complication is that Joan requires not one, but two papal dispensations to marry uh, Henry IV. One is because they're related within the prohibited degrees of consanguinity. Mm. Um, Third cousins uh, a couple of times over, so by no means the closest royal match. But they also need a dispensation because of the papal schism, whereby England recognised one pope, but France recognises another pope. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that whole thing. So you kind of have to apply to two different popes, and Joan has to not only get an agreement that she can marry this man that she's technically a bit too closely related to, but also she needs permission to live amongst uh, schismatics, i.e. people who support the wrong pope, as her pope would say. yeah. Yeah, give it 100 years, it gets a lot worse. <laughs> well, indeed. Um, thankfully, uh, though, this does come in March 1402, and they're married by proxy just uh, two weeks later. Married by proxy? Yeah, so that's where they sort of have an official ceremony, but they're not actually there. So you have a couple of people who do uh, stand-ins for them at either end. So oh, like, yeah, yeah. Definitely married, but we can't actually be there yet. Yeah. Sort of a yeah. Zoom wedding for the 15th century. <laughs> Uh, The reason that they have to do it by proxy is Joan can't come to England until she's settled her affairs in Brittany because, of course, she is the regent of Brittany for her young son. And unfortunately, her Breton subjects aren't happy about the match because they fear that England will try to take control of the duchy. Yeah, that's a reasonable assumption, isn't it? You'd think the English would definitely put troops there. So consequently, the marriage comes at quite a cost to Joan. She has to relinquish the regency to her maternal uncle, the Duke of Burgundy. (laughs) Not him again. (laughs) As well as uh, relinquish the custody of her male children. So she can take her two daughters with her to England, but she has to give up her sons, basically, and leave them in Brittany. Um, so she does go to England, uh, as seems to be almost a rite of passage for Queen's Consort at the moment. Uh, it's a difficult winter crossing, so stormy weather kept them at sea for five days and nights before they were forced to put in at Falmouth on the 19th of January in 1403. Mm, eek. Uh, so she then makes slow progress to Exeter, whereas uh, Henry rushes uh, to meet her. So they are reunited on the 30th of January with lavish celebrations. Oh, lovely. <laughs> uh, they then progress together to Winchester, where they are married. Uh, their marriage ceremony sees the first recorded use in England of the phrase, there too I plight thee my troth. Very odd word, isn't it? Is it old English? And we just thought it sounded better like that. Yeah. Kept it. Mm. Uh, and it's followed by a magnificent banquet. Uh, one highlight is a cake in the shape of crowned panthers with flames issuing from their mouths and ears. God. Why do, well, at some point, you've got to think... That we don't need to ice this. This is just an impressive thing on its own. <laughs> yeah. you know, if if in the 14th century I'd seen a pan- crowned pan- a model of crowned panthers breathing mm. fire, yeah, 
I wouldn't think it'd be even better if I could eat it. <laughs> I'd be looking at the thing. Yeah. In fact, I wouldn't want to eat it. Mm. Well, I, I mean, it's a weird, it's a foreign country, isn't it? The past. I tell you what, the showstopper round in Bake Off is going to break your heart every week. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. You see, I've never seen that. On my airfix, if someone said, "Can I eat that?" I go, "No, spent <laughs> ages on that." What are you talking about? Can I eat it? <laughs> Goodness me, it's just so weird. It's to be if you made your airfix out of chocolate fingers. But it wouldn't look as much like an aeroplane. No, it wouldn't. That's true. <laughs> it's got, I think people just need to think a bit more. Mm. Uh, Henry's clearly determined to impress because he then arranged an unusually extravagant coronation ceremony for Joan uh, as Queen at Westminster Abbey. Uh, she yeah. sat enthroned on her own, elevated on a high platform under a rich and blazoned canopy, uh, and was holding both a scepter and orb, i.e. the markers of sovereignty. Oh, this is more like it. Mm. So he's really sort of putting her up there as like, yeah, she is proper, proper queen. They're having a lot of fun, aren't they? Yeah. Now, partly, of course, Henry wants to impress his new bride, um, mm. but there are political considerations at play as well. As a usurper, he needs to legitimise the Lancastrian dynasty, particularly, as you said, because the French refused to recognise him as king, which could mm. lead to a very damaging war. Um, marrying Joan makes potential allies of Navarre and Brittany, the latter of which, as you said, Henry probably does hope to control mm. through her. Uh, and it's not a marriage in isolation. He arranges the marriage of one daughter, one of his daughters from his first marriage, to uh, the heir of the Holy Roman Emperor, and another to uh, marry the King of Denmark. So he's getting this recognition, allies across Europe, all part of the puzzle of him establishing himself as king and putting pressure on the French to acknowledge, uh, to acknowledge him as king. Mm. Okay. Good, so good, good diplomatic game he has. Mm. Though you might ask what's in it for Joan, because, um, you know, as I said, she's yeah. not a teenage princess required to go over and marry him to seal an alliance. She's a grown independent woman, giving up the regency of Brittany, which is her home, custody of her sons, the respect and status that all of that uh, would have given her. So, you know, she, she had a perfectly comfortable life. She didn't need to do this. No, no. Um, but if we recall going all the way back to Eleanor of Aquitaine and her problems when she split from the King of France, it's being a rich and eligible dowager can make you very vulnerable because nefarious and ambitious lords oh, will yeah. see uh, a wid rich widowed woman as an easy target. This That whole rich widowed woman thing makes more sense... Of I don't know why this, I thought of this that that dastardly chap that Mary Queen of Scots ended up with yeah, Bothwell, yeah, who mm. just seemed to be like a bad sort gangster. Mm. Oh, so obviously marrying Henry as the King of England will offer her protection and status because obviously Queen is an improvement on Duchess. Yeah. yeah, 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 definitely. And as we said, they genuinely seem to have liked each other. It does seem to have been a happy marriage. They spent a lot of their time together, particularly Eltham, which was Henry's favourite uh, royal palace. Uh, Joan's the first widow to be the Queen of England since Eldgith of Mercia in 1066. Eldgith of Mercia? Was she Harold's? Harold's consort. Oh. But as you're saying, she is thus has that very good schooling in queenship in a way. She's unusually experienced for a woman in this position. Like Henry, yeah. seems to be a very hands-on sort of woman, more interested in governance and business than needlework. Good. That makes this it means it's going to be a much more interesting episode. Uh, and she quickly becomes one of Henry's chief confidants. Uh, and in 1404, she's given uh, a tower at uh, Westminster to maintain her own office, where she manages her estates and her accounts. Oh wow! Mm. Good work. Now, unfortunately for Joan, this uh, office is in many ways a cause of discontent in the country. 
Mm. Not for the office itself, but for the reason for it, because Henry settled Joan with a dower of £6,666 a year, which is much more than any previous English queen had received, and indeed it had effectively a tenth of the government's total income. Wow. Hmm. That's excessive? Yes. Um, Joan is also, is almost certainly, therefore, the wealthiest person in the entire country, other than obviously Henry himself as king. But on top of this, she also enjoyed a large dowry from her first husband and ongoing income from her Breton dower lands, none of which goes into the English royal coffers. Mm. So she's already pretty well off, even without becoming Queen of England. So she doesn't technically need quite so much. Uh, doesn't give what she's got. Um, and it keeps on coming. So when um, Catherine Swinford, who is uh, Henry's uh, stepmother, dies, Joan then inherits even more of the Duchy of Lancaster estates um, and obviously all the money that comes with that. So you can see why she needed her own office to be built. Yeah. She, you know, that she's got... I'm, I'm in, on the side of the government. She's got enough money to cover that. Mm. This is madness. Particularly because Henry is struggling due uh, financially because of partly financial mismanagement. He's not great with the numbers, which I guess perhaps is part of the <laughs> explanation there. <Yeah. laughs> but generally also insufficient resources. Uh, so this is a, it is a struggle financially for England at this period. So shelling out an extortionate sum of money on a wealthy foreign queen whose maternal family might well invade at any given moment, not the most popular move. Not at all, I can see that now. And as you said, Henry's already got four sons and heirs, so there's no real need for him uh, to marry. Yeah, this will be massively unpopular, it's rubbish. And what's more, he doesn't really gain any influence over the Duchy of Brittany. As I said, Joan is replaced by um, someone from the French royal family, and tensions between England and Brittany actually worsen in this period rather than improve. Uh, mm. Breton pirates raided the English coast, and Joan's large train of largely Breton attendants attracts constant criticism. Do you know what it's? I think uh, he he's seen in Joan, just like he's CEO of UK PLC, mm. and he's brought her in as CFO. He said, "I'm rubbish with the numbers. We <laughs> get on. In you come. <laughs> There's no, all. She doesn't do anything. Bring mm. anything to it, but other than being extremely competent as a sort of co-ruler, which well, I suppose she didn't bring no advantage. So, as you said, for one thing, she and Henry are happy together, which you might say is reward enough. Mm-hmm. Subjects don't, obviously, but <laughs> Henry might. Um, she does seek to improve relations with Brittany. So in 1407, she does help to secure a truce uh, with the duchy. Um, she's also an active voice in diplomatic uh, discussions. Yeah, she sides with Henry's son, uh, Prince Hal, future Henry V, uh, against her husband in a debate over whether to support the Burgundians or the Armagnacs in the, uh, the Armagnac Wars in France. So I guess from Henry's perspective, he's got a companion and a wife that he really loves, um, someone who is competent, that his, her judgment he respects is quite a useful, useful ally to him in his kingship. Yeah, yeah but, I think that's, that's, yeah. But on a wider diplomatic level for the country, perhaps not such a profitable marriage. Yeah personal rather than professional marriage, which seems an odd criticism to make of a marriage, but nevertheless. <laughs> yeah. Um, unfortunately, Henry's reign uh, is not uh, an easy one. Uh, in the year that they marry, he faces a major rebellion, which he does put down, but in a very brutal battle of Shrewsbury, in which uh, Prince Hal is nearly killed when he gets shot in the face with an arrow. Gosh. Oh, yeah. So that's Henry V. Henry V, who gets shot in yeah. the arrow, yeah, fighting alongside his father. Um, Henry IV is often forced to compromise with Parliament due to the weakness of his position and indeed his weakness of his finances. He probably really never gets to enjoy 
being king, hence Shakespeare's famous quote for that, Henry the Fourth: uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. Oh, right. Mm. Oh, Graham. The way, you, the way you knit Shakespeare into your storytelling, it makes me mild, like if, we're, if 100% is loving Shakespeare, it put <laughs> 0.1. I guess that's that's the way for you to maybe take Shakespeare, that if you want a better, you can't really get a much better pithy summary of Henry IV's experience of being king than uneasy is the head that wears the crown. Fine. Stick it in a limerick and we've got gold. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what you want, that line from Shakespeare. There's obviously several thousand more lines in that play. <laughs> About four more lines should give it all the context it needs. Mm. Uh, worse still, as well as a difficult reign politically, uh, Joan also marries Henry IV just before he suffers a serious and terminal decline in his health. Mm. Which uh, must have been rather horrifying for Joan to witness compared to his youthful virility when they first met. Um, it's not known exactly what was wrong with him, but it seems to have been partly a skin disease that's sort of compared to leprosy. Oh dear. So in 1408, he becomes a virtual recluse. Um, he made his will, the first royal will, made out in English in 1409, in which he despairs of his misspent life and sought to protect Joan by endowing her with the Duchy of Lancaster. Because obviously wow. she didn't have enough money. To... <laughs> but he really loves her. Hmm. Um, she's got some real dirt on him. <laughs> uh, he rallies a little bit in 1409, but does still die just 46 years old on the 20th of March 1413 with uh, Joan and now Henry V, amongst various others, at his side. Mm. That's sweet. But so he didn't have a long reign then? No, no, he doesn't have a long reign. He's only king for not quite 14 years. Uh, but So Joan is thus no longer Queen of England. No, but I, that's not the end of her. No, but also, because she's not the mother of the next king, Henry V, oh. despite being, obviously, the consort to Henry IV, she's not even the queen mother at this point. Oh, dear. At least technically, but in fact, she was largely treated as an honorary queen mother. So she established very good relationships with her stepsons, particularly the younger two. So uh, John, Duke of Bedford, whom she addressed in one letter, uh, the first letter of an English queen bearing a signature, incidentally. Um, as our dearest and best beloved son, which I think was maybe just to mean that she loves him a lot rather than of all of them, you're the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and also the youngest, Humphrey, the Duke of Gloucester, who she seems to have been the closest to. But crucially, she also seems to be on decent terms with Henry V himself. Um, he spent very little company. Uh, he spent very little time in the company of women. Uh, but Joan does seem to be something of an exception to this. He made grants to her as the king's mother, the queen. And indeed, with Henry being unmarried for most of his reign, Joan in many ways still was the queen in England. Yeah. What are we going to do? I feel like we should give her queen mother points for all this. Yeah, you sort of, I mean, I think we can credit her for the, you know, anything in terms of battling a scandal subjectivity, but I, as we'll get there in longevity, I fear she isn't the queen mother. I knew, I see, I knew, as soon as I said that, I thought he's, he likes the, uh, he likes That's the technicality. Because, yeah. you know, we're not doing somebody like Margaret Beaufort, who is the mother and grandmother of the king, but she was never queen consort and consequently doesn't get an episode. Okay. So it's so the we, same kind of technicality on the other yeah. side. Okay, so at least we're playing fair. Mm. Although I have voiced my affection for her. <laughs> yeah, and the protest her is noted. Yeah. In 1415, Henry uh, resumed the Hundred Years' War and he leaves England to go and campaign in France. Uh, and he licenses Joan to reside with her retinue in any of his castles of Windsor, Wallingford, Burke, Hampstead, and Hartford while he's away. And his taking his leave of Joan is one of the sort of major official ceremonies that he goes through before 
uh, he makes his departure. So again, that suggests that she is still filling in for public ceremonial as the Queen. Mm. When they need Mm. that kind of thing in a public ceremony, Joan steps in. Well, she's ideally suited. Indeed. Uh, she was granted garter robes in 1416, helped secure another Anglo-Breton truce in 1417, and uh, receives further favours from Henry V in 1418. Could they have women in the Order of the Garter? Yeah, they sort of had to kind of honour some honorary ladies, so she wouldn't have gone to the meetings and stuff, but... Like the Royal Society. <laughs> yeah. uh, Henry, of course, in 1415 was victorious uh, in his campaign with a remarkable victory against the French in the Battle of Agincourt. Uh, despite a personal truce uh, that she helped to arrange between Henry and her eldest son, uh, Duke John V of Brittany. She was rather caught in the middle with Agincourt because another one of her sons, Arthur, was wounded and taken prisoner whilst fighting Ooh. for the French. Um, the husband of her eldest daughter, the Duke of Alençon, was killed, as was her brother, Charles of Navarre, who was the constable of France. Oh, dear. The conflict, mm. in emotional conflict. Mm. Oh, dear. I mean, or was there none? Uh, I'm sure there was, but I guess even though she's, in arguably she's got more feet in the French side of the conflict, but her yeah. position is in England. Yeah, yeah. Um, Anti-French sentiment rises in England uh, in this period. A petition was presented by the Commons that year asking for the expulsions of all Bretons still in the realm, not including her, but would include all of her servants. Um, it accuses them of exporting money and jewels and spying. Uh, but Joan does retain her status Uh, she accompanies Henry on his triumphal entry into London two weeks later as part of the celebrations for the victory Uh, and I suppose she does at least get to see her son Arthur again because as a prisoner he's brought back to England hey oh that's nice Hmm. so they can mourn together yeah so despite some challenges along the way Joan is still living a good life in England as honorary queen mother Yeah, really good. Solid. But all of this comes to a sudden halt in 1419 when she was arrested in her manor at Havering, accused by a friar in her household of seeking by sorcery and necromancy to have destroyed the king. The king? Hmm. What? So, in other words, she is accused of attempting regicidal witchcraft to kill Henry V. And everyone laughs at that, and it's a funny Rex fact. No, no, no. She's arrested. She is actually arrested officially. And and then, and then the king hears of it and lets her free. Nope. What? So, what's going on? Is I think your question? Because it's hard to see any possible reason why Joan would want to kill Henry V. Uh, Yeah. And she's never actually put on trial or formally charged with any of this. She's just arrested, and then that's it. The motivation seems to be entirely financial. Because despite all his successes, Henry V desperately needs money for his French campaigns. And as we said, Joan's excessively large dowry is a tenth of government revenues. So being able to suddenly boost your money by 10% when you're desperate for it... Mm bit of an e- oh. easy target oh so she's ar- arrested just and said we're going to take the money back but everything's fine go back to usual but you're not having this bit of money yeah so henry confiscates all of her monies all of her dowry her lands estates etc so he gets all of that money they no longer have to be giving her her massive dowry but yeah. equally she's not actually ever put on trial or ever really put in danger of being you know burnt at the stake so she's gone from the Queen Mother, sort of like Henry's leaver in charge, stay at my castle if you want, by the way, hmm. 
um, to tell you what, I won't burn you alive if you give me everything you own. Yeah, so it seems like he'd maybe tried to get some money out, out of her in a slightly more informal means and not been successful, and thus they resort to this. Whether it's Henry himself or whether it's something that the council does, but he certainly doesn't reverse it. Um, but yeah, so they take all the money. Um, but clearly no one actually seems to think that she's guilty of this. So despite the accusation, she's not locked up in the Tower of London, but actually enjoys a pretty comfortable house arrest. Um, initially at Pevensey Castle, under the care of uh, John Pelham, who was a close ally of Henry IV, and thus most likely also a close ally of Joan herself. Uh, and she then moves to Leeds Castle, which, as you've seen, is quite a traditional queenly castle. Uh, but she's got her money, she hasn't got any money coming in now at all from anywhere. Uh, she gets an allowance from the government, which is obviously vastly reduced on what she had previously, but she does have enough to live a pretty comfortable life for a, an aristocrat in this period. So she continues to purchase fine clothes and wines and food stuff. She keeps a stable, which suggests that she was able to go out yeah. riding. Numerous servants. So she's living... She's fine. She's living comfortably, just not the second wealthiest person in the country anymore. Yeah. And indeed, as a sign that she has not really fallen from grace, she's visited by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Mm-hmm. impressive given that she's technically been charged of being a witch <laughs> oh yeah yeah so that that definitely was just like we're going to take all of her money what why should we say we do this i mean if there was an option of because we want her money on the check form they would have ticked it yeah but it's just there was witchcraft mm. um also visited several times by her younger stepson uh, humphrey the duke of gloucester so you know a fairly comfortable existence given the seriousness of the charges but equally not what she would have been hoping for going into 1419. No, but also a totally normal existence just without the money and power. Mm. Exactly the same otherwise. Uh, In 1422, Henry V falls ill with dysentery and is dying. And he clearly, and quite rightly, feels guilty at his treatment of Joan, so he orders her release on his deathbed, as well as a full restoration of her position and her property, as he says himself, lest her should be a charge unto our conscience. So, feel guilty. Mm. Um, he doesn't just release her, though. He specifies an immediate payment to procure horses for two carriages so that she can then travel to any place in his realm, wherever and whenever she wants, as well as several gowns to be made for her of whatever material and colour she might desire, such as she useth to wear. Oh, man. This is amazing. It's a total apology. And she's um, once again described as Mother Queen Joanna, a fully respected member of the royal family. That's fantastic. Um, humble pie there but also she he is almost like he's passing the buck to the next generation saying right here you go i had to put yeah, up with this. you pay for this now <laughs> yeah 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 so 1422 um he dies at the end of the month she is released um and she lives out her sort of final years now in sort of semi-retirement which i think is fairly understandable she's got her money back uh, initially she's based at langley palace until that burns down in 1431 at which point she moved back to her manor at havering uh, she employs the renowned composer John Dunstable. Went on a pilgrimage oh, to. Oh, you. Oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, she went on a pilgrimage to Walsingham and uh, enjoys a visit from her son Gil when he visited England from 1432 to 1437. Mind you, this is exactly what Henry was trying to do anyway. Just make her retire. Hmm. But she's got so... the money this time, so. <laughs> Um, Henry VI treated her as his sort of honorary grandmother again, and in 1437 gave her a bejeweled tablet as a New Year's gift. <laughs> nice. Mm. I mean, it's funny, there's, that's still a gift. Yeah. As you said, let's take a normal thing and put lots of jewels on it. Yeah. 
but I'm sure people would do that this Christmas with tablets. Mm. Um, and it is in 1437, indeed, that Joan does uh, die on the 10th of June at Havering, uh, not too shabby, 69 years old. Ooh, well done. Mm. Uh, Henry VI ensures that she is given an honourable burial, so numerous nobles led by uh, Humphrey are uh, present, as well as various archbishops and others. Uh, and she's buried at Canterbury Cathedral alongside Henry IV in a magnificent tomb that she herself commissioned. Well, well done, that lady. She's mm. uh, survived the game of royal life. Indeed. Uh, so that is the life and consortship of Joan of Navarre. We'll review her after a short break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Battleliness! From the death of her first husband in 1399, we see a woman who's largely in control of her destiny and determined to remain so. So she mm. said, unlike most royal marriages, she chooses to marry Henry IV and become Queen of England. It's not forced upon her. Uh, despite her vast dowry, she kept her Breton incomes for herself. So the historian Strom noted she was a woman bent on exercising a significant degree of fiscal self-determination. God, would you Adam and Eve it? <laughs> Uh, she chose not to return to Brittany upon Henry IV's death, and instead obviously enjoyed her status as honorary Queen Mother. And until her arrest in 1419, she'd enjoyed 20 years of being a wealthy, high-status woman who was basically choosing her own path, which is not something that we can say of all that many of her predecessors as Queen. No, I mean, she is fantastic, isn't she? That's what we're looking for in this. Mm. So, I mean, self-determination. Other than that, though... Um, I'm not sure there's an awful lot to go on for battliness. There's no sort of point of significant opposition that she makes to anything that's going on or a sense of her fighting a corner. And even with the witchcraft accusations, she does sort of seem to have patiently waited things out rather than put up a fuss or fight for her rights. Yeah, I'm... Maybe that was the right course of action, though, there. Well, understandable and sensible. And, you know, you're often saying when people are in these high-stake games that there's a point at which you should just take out all your chips and cash in. And retire. just retire, right? And that's yeah. what she does. She's like, you know what? Okay, I've still got some palaces. I'm still quite comfortable. Okay. Yeah. 
don't really mind. Yeah. I'm quite happy. Yeah, 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 completely. Completely. Don't not, not, it's always got to get the next thing, got to get this thing. Actually, mm. sometimes it's quite nice, isn't it? Which is good, which is sensible, which is laudable and understandable. It's not such great battliness. Yeah. Take your point. Tricky. It's solid, though. Five. I'm going to be a bit less generous, I think. I'm going to go... I'm going to go three and a half. Because it's one of those funny things where it's it's agency, but it's not... It's sort of almost passive. Like, it's choice. Passively done. Yes. You know, and Eleanor sort of obviously has Aquitaine and marries Henry II, and he doesn't... Mm. He basically takes Aquitaine away from her. She does not take that well. Mm. Mm. Whereas, you know, Jones gives it up. She's like, well, it's a shame, but I do have this money and I'm just going to keep that money, so I guess... Yeah, and that keeps her in the game longer, but doesn't necessarily score well. Mm. So I'm going to go three and a half for battliness. I'm going down to four. Okay. (laughs) So a four and a three and a half, that's seven and a half for battliness. Scandal. We have some hints of naughtiness when it comes to some of the men in her life. Oh, where's my bell? Come find my bell. (laughs) Found it. So her first husband had only been dead for a few months before Joan got the ball rolling with uh, Henry IV, which, as I said, suggests that they were not just well acquainted from their meeting in 1396, but they had established a deep personal connection. And if we think when they meet in 1396, um, her husband is, you know, sort of 57 years old and obviously quite a bit older. Henry is about her age, 29, 30, good-looking, highly respected knight, a much more sort of virile figure that obviously turns Joan's head. Um, he is then, of course, exiled to France in 1399, where they may have met again before he launches his large accidental invasion of England. Might we speculate about how close they get while she is still married to her husband? Oh! You know, I hadn't. I, I, my brain wasn't going there at all. Mm, that's the thing. It's not just that they meet. It's that she is still married at this point to the Duke of Brittany. Mm. Let's see how loud it is. Hmm, it's there. There is a little ding. There's a faint dinging. The problem is, as you said, she basically is pregnant or just having given birth for almost the entirety of her time as Duchess of Brittany. So there's a pretty oh, yeah. decent time that she is actually pregnant when she meets Henry. And it's not because of Henry, it's because of mm. her husband. So maybe they do establish a romantic or even lustful connection, but I think it's pretty unlikely that it's requited. Requited, is that the word, or is that when... Um, oh, yeah, that's feeling the same, was it? Uh, consummated. Mm. You know, a little bit of gossip for us there, but I don't know if she actually does anything untoward. Yeah, I don't think I can get... No. Another example, when she's under house arrest in 1420, she is visited by a, quote, close friend, Thomas Camoy, who is a respected knight who'd been a part of Joan's escort to England in 1403 and commanded the rear guard on the left side of the English line at Agincourt. Uh, he visits her in April of 1420 and enjoyed his visit so much that he doesn't leave until January 1421. Wow. Hmm. I hope he was um, wanted. Well, one assumes uh, so. Um, her funds are limited by Henry V at this point, but she then makes, at this time, some surprisingly generous gifts to her servants, which may well have been because Thomas was uh, quite generous in providing extra funds for her. Uh, sadly, he oh. dies just two months after... Uh, departing Leeds Castle, so we don't get to see what, if anything, would have come of that time. But Joan orders some incredibly ornate mourning garments that year, which had often been assumed by people looking at her sort of household accounts that they would have been for Henry V. But of course, he is just 34 at this point and doesn't die until 1422. So it seems more likely that they were for Thomas, indicating that he is 
indeed a very close friend. Wow. Good detective work on the gowns. By other historians. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is that scandalous, though? Well, again, it's, it's good gossip. Yeah. It's kind of scandally, but, you know, she's a widow, he's a widower, and their relationship wouldn't really have had any significant political repercussions. To be honest, why not? Yeah, it's a lot like um, Henry the Fourth in the first place. Yeah. The biggie, the scandal, though, in terms of a headline, is obviously the fact that she was arrested on charges of witchcraft. Ah, oh, I don't want to even uh, give it a point, though. Well, let's let's just for a moment enjoy the spectacle of being able to say witchcraft as part of scandal. Yeah. True. Witchcraft and attempted regicide are big headlines. Yeah, 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 that's true. I mean, it would make the front page. It probably doesn't even, It's wrapping fish and chips the next day. <laughs> I reckon everyone knew it. But, you know, at the time, as she is arrested, it must have been uh, a scary turn of events. I'm sure they didn't say, look, this is all nonsense, we just want your money. I'm sure she was formally arrested, and that must have been terrifying. Fears of sorcery were present at this time. It doesn't come absolutely nowhere, the idea of charging someone with sorcery. It is something that people are worried about at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And indeed... Lollards, uh, religious uh, reformers, are being burnt at the stake as heretics. Yeah. And, you know, okay. Edward II, Richard II, divinely ordained kings, they had, that hadn't protected their lives in the last Oh, yeah, that's century. a good point. Yeah, I was thinking that she'd have like this... She would know that, that, that her royal connections would save her, ultimately, but mm. actually, yeah, in that context. And remember, she's not the actual queen mother. She's connected to the French royal family, but it's not like she's the daughter or the sister of the King of France. She doesn't really have a full-on powerful protector that's going to swoop in and rescue her. Mm, scary, yeah. Um, at the very least, it's a reminder of the fragility that we still have of queenly power. So Lisa Hilton noted that this indicates queen's power remained consensual and customary rather than constitutional. So even the richest, most powerful woman in the land can suddenly be arrested on trumped-up charges and lose all her possessions without recourse to justice, basically just because she's got too much of her own money. Yeah. Yeah, it's still a man's world. Uh, The accusation came from Friar Randolph in her household that she was compassing the death and destruction of our Lord the King in the most treasonable and horrible manner that could be devised. Um, And what's more, there were rumours in the past about Joan's immediate family. Her father, Charles the Bad, had purportedly employed sorcerers, and her son Arthur was said to dabble in the dark arts. So, again, it's not like there's nothing here. Mm. It was a shock, but it wasn't scandalous. It must have been scary, but I don't think it was... So it is a scandalous affair, but the real scandal Mm. is Henry's shameful mistreatment of his stepmother rather than Joan being rich. that's it. Yeah, it's, it's, it should be Henry's scandal. She's the subject of it. Mm. And it's clearly a set-up job. So the Archbishop of Canterbury released a public warning about Henry being at risk from the superstitious deeds of necromancers um, just a week before Joan is arrested. So you suspect that's just laying the ground to make mm-hmm. it more yeah. plausible. Um, in, in reality, you were saying about the front pages, the notor- they're obviously very gossipy, the, column, uh, the chroniclers, but they don't really make much mention of it, to be honest. Some don't mention it at all. And again, one assumes because it was known that it just wasn't true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Henry orders a release. He doesn't specifically reference witchcraft. He says only that a dower had been confiscated for such causes as ye know. So that's either to protect her reputation by not mentioning it, or perhaps because it's such palpable nonsense that she. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We all know. Yeah, we all know what happened here. Let's just stop now. 
Because as we said, it's it's clearly about money. For all Henry's successes yeah. in France, he was running out of money. And economically, he couldn't afford to keep going, but politically, he couldn't afford to stop because, one, he's very close to actually becoming king of France, but also these mm. victories have established the lang- legitimacy of the Lancastrian dynasty in a way that Henry IV could only have dreamed of. So he really needs to keep on going. And mm. as you said, Joan, an easy target and loads of money. That's a very quick win financially. Yeah, I hadn't considered that pressure that there's because there's such a large prize in sight. Mm. He'd probably do, be doing things that he wouldn't normally do, and explains the guild. So there's men, there's witchcraft, and yet at the same time we sort of don't really have anything. Yeah, I think I, that's. I think you put it best when you said uh, that it was Henry's scandal. Mm. So adultery, regicide, and witchcraft. What's your scandal score? <laughs> Not much. Imagine that. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I sort of feel like it needs to be a zero. Yeah. Which is bizarre, given that those are the headlines. No. She's got nothing, has she? Mm. Even even the um, love affairs. Love affairs. <laughs> even the romantic... Even the sweet yeah. romantic relationships that she forms. Yeah. Couldn't even get any scandal out of that. Mm. Yeah, nothing. Zero. So a zero for the uh, scandalous, adulterous, regicidal witch. <laughs> <laughs> Subjectivity. Um, she gives the impression of being a pretty decent person. Mm. Um, and she makes some notable intercessions as a duchess and queen. Uh, in 1405, she, uh, she secured the restoration of property for the Countess of Oxford, whilst also going on to obtain pardons for the abbots of Colchester and Bailey. Ooh. That's our neck of the woods. Uh, and evidence of her fundamental good nature comes in 1425 when she learned that Friar Randolph so the man in her household who formally accuses her of witchcraft uh, was still languishing in the Tower of London but despite everything given the the trouble that he put her in um, probably knowing though that he'd been forced into it she intercedes with her stepson Duke Humphrey to try to secure the Friar's release oh good so doesn't forget about him doesn't hold a grudge Mm. tries to get him out There wasn't a great deal of opportunity for her to show off her abilities as queen, given how short and troubled Henry IV's reign was. She seems like a pretty safe pair of hands as consort. Um, obviously, before she becomes queen, she was respected enough in Brittany to be made uh, regent. And while it's not so unusual for a mother to be the regent to a son, usually a powerful male relative would be brought in mm. to sort of effectively do the actual job. But in this case, it does seem that Joan was genuinely the one who was in charge in Brittany until uh, she marries Henry. And she does a pretty good job, restored relations with her husband's French enemies, oversaw impressive funerary, ce- uh, funerary ceremonies for her husband and a very impressive coronation for her son. So, you know, if she had stayed in Brittany for the whole of the Regency, she'd probably have done a very good job. Yeah. I mean, she's passing the tests mm. that are put in front of her. She just doesn't want to be there. Yeah. Um, but in England, obviously, with those qualities um, on display, Henry IV gave her that financial independence. So she manages her own affairs very uh, effectively, takes her advice on diplomatic matters. So as she said, she's part of that council advising on the English response to the Armagnac Wars, is willing to side against Henry IV if uh, she disagrees with him, which she does on that occasion, uh, help negotiate peace settlements with Brittany in 1407 and 1417, and, you know, as I said, other than arresting her, Henry V does show her great honour that he doesn't fully need to, I suppose. She isn't technically the Queen Mother, even though she was the Queen. She's just a very solid pair of hands. She's got great experience. Mm. And her reputation obviously um, lasts well after her death, because in the 16th century, a chronicler mistakenly uh, stated that she was appointed regent when he was off campaigning uh, at Ashen Court. 
1415. So it was actually one of his brothers, but it sort of suggests the fact that that assumption about her was made later on means yeah. she has a reputation then, which does also last for, you know, maybe a hundred years afterwards as well. Yeah, and that she suggests she was probably helping anyway. It's not really much of a legacy as queen, not a huge impact. So she has a bit of interest in promoting scholars at Oxbridge, possessed a few illuminated manuscripts, but she's not a noted literary patron despite being incredibly wealthy. It's not a huge amount of stuff that she actually really gets to do. She's not really pushing the envelope as queen in the way that others have done. I don't reckon that's what this bit is about, really, though, because what... what well, you know, some uh, might do lots of religious foundations, some might be literary patrons, some might have a very strong and obvious role in terms of how the country's governed or that sort of thing. There isn't really anything you can point to and say, wow, she did. I think it's, would you want to be a subject? Yeah. Well, in terms of what the subjects of the time would have said, no, yeah. because she wasn't very popular with the subjects. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, That's she can't true. be blamed for just generic English xenophobia, but she does make some mistakes in this regard. So in 1403, the year that she came to England, um, Breton pirates were captured raiding the Devon coast, mm. um, which obviously would taint her with association. But furthermore, she persuaded Henry to grant um, these pirates into her custody and then released them without any ransom. That's which weird. does not go down well with uh, the English subjects. No. Eleanor of Provence, the consort of Henry III, is criticised for bringing too many foreign servants to England, and Joan really makes the same mistake. So a 1404 committee uh, requested that all French persons, Bretons, Lombards, Italians and Navarrese be removed out of the palace. Uh, and while they modified this, so she was allowed to keep about a dozen, this sort of animosity does linger throughout her time in England. So as I said, there was another petition in uh, 1415. So, you know, it's not really entirely all her fault. It is largely xenophobia, but equally she's perhaps not been very canny about the way that she's managed this at times. She she is a a, a bit of a paradox mm. because she's got uh, all of the scandal you could ask for, yet none of the scandal. Mm. A queen mother, but not a queen mother. Yeah. Uh, totally competent, but at the same time, yeah, you know, what's she doing? And also one of the things that we praised her for in her agency was her independence her personal wealth and the way she keeps hold of that she's doing her own thing but if we're looking at it from the perspective of a consort and a subject treasuries in dire straits henry the fourth's lack of money seriously undermined his power as king he probably could have done with a little bit of that wealth that she had mm. so henry the fourth's very generous with the dowry she doesn't really return that generosity at least financially yeah, I'm struggling to blame her for that, but yeah, I do see what you mean. I think her situation is almost, it feels like, a, it's like a game that's been played, or this little situation where everyone's like, but we've got to do this, or this will happen. And she's like, well, yeah, I know, but if I do this, then I've just got my lovely palace's money and I'm fine. Play the game, Joanne! So that's why I'm confused, because I like her. Because that's exactly that's what you exactly want them to do, yeah. <laughs> it's like, if, if you were to make her the regent of England, or give her lots of power, and thus her personal interest is entirely tied up with England's personal interests, I think she'd yeah. be very, very good and competent. Yeah, exactly. I like it a lot. I like it. It's good. I respect her for it. I don't know if it's going to get a big subjectivity score. It's not good. I don't think it's a bad one either. Because I think she's no, pretty no, good no. and competent. She's a decent consort, but... Tricky. Four, three, four? I was going to... This one, I was going to go down the middle and think of five. I think she's competent, does her job. It's almost like a score report where it's like, she's really clever. She just tried harder. She could do yeah. really, really well. And she's like, but I only need to try this hard. Yeah. Do I need to, what do I need to get to be, what's, what's a good 
score. Anything above five will do. Will five do? Yeah, five, fine. <laughs> yeah. Let's give it five. She yeah. deserves it. I'll do five and then I've got more time to go and yeah. play in the sun. Yeah, good point. It's a five for me too. <laughs> so that is a ten for subjectivity. Longevity. Uh, so Joan is Queen Consort of England from the 7th of February 1403 to the 20th of March 1413. So that's 10.08 years, which gives her a score of 7.5 out of 20. So 35th mm. overall. And you must have done the maths. What if we did include the other bits? Very roughly, this isn't exact to the months, Henry V is king for about nine years. So thus that would be another nine years as Queen Mother. And then she's Queen would be sort of Queen Grandmother for the first 15 years of Henry VI's reign. So that would technically be 34.08 years of queenship. The nine years get split in half, so that's four and a half, and the Queen Grandmother bit would be split in half again. So that would give her instead 18.33 years of counted queenship, which would give her a score of 11.5. That would have put her in about 22nd place. But... We don't count that time because, as you said, technically she's an honorary rather than an actual queen mother and mm. queen grandmother. So it is just the 7.5. So it's not a vast, vast difference. The reason I was interested, I thought it would be huge. I thought there'd be much more mm. of a points difference. Dynasty, not the program. Sadly, Joan has no children by Henry IV, which gives her a dynasty score of zero out of 20. Yet she had loads of kids. And yet she had nine children. In Brittany. This is so weird. Uh, sadly, the Northern Chronicle stated in 1403 that Joan and Henry had uh, two uh, stillborn children, so presumably twins. Oh. Um, and there's no other record of this, but it does sound plausible, particularly as her first marriage, actually, she had sort of twins that died young. And they're both very prolific in their first marriages, and they're still of an age where children are possible when they marry, but obviously probably less mm. so as they go along. But as That's such, awesome. yeah, it is, it is a zero for dynasty. That gives Joan a total score. Uh, and as I say, this is the weird thing with her, is only 25, which places her all the way down in 24th. So she's just ahead of her fellow country, woman, Berengaria of Navarre. So that's 24th out of the 32 that we've done, which doesn't really seem to reflect her, either her competence or indeed the impression that she made on us. Yeah. As as a school report goes, that's fine, and she'll slip off in and never keep in touch with her school friends. Mm. Uh, it's not all about the score, of course. Does she have that certain something, that lasting legacy, the great achievement and star quality that we call... Rex Factor! No. You've got to play the game to win. Yeah, it's this weird thing. Like If you reduce her life into bullet points, it's incredibly impressive. She's this sort of Spanish-French princess taken hostage in Paris... Duchess of Brittany becomes the regent, then becomes Queen of England, a respected Tudor, mm. Queen Mother of Henry V, arrested for witchcraft. She's in England for all three of the Lancastrian kings. And yet, we don't have a huge amount of detail in any of that. She lives a pretty impressive life, an impressive character, and yet there's a lack of detail, as you say. Maybe it's just because she's quite comfortable with the life she gets and doesn't play the game. Yeah, she's a chilled-out entertainer. <laughs> I, I think it's brilliant. Mm. It's a bit of a... Um, Role model. Yeah. But uh, if you are the head teacher deciding which pupil has the Rex Factor, it's not going to be one that, you know, sneaking off around the bike sheds because she can and get by. Mm. No. No, Sandy Jones does not have the Rex Factor, but uh, she does She does win our respect and our affection, I think. She just must be. She must be in a really fascinating character, I think. Mm. Correspondence Corner. So that was the life and consortship of Joan of Navarre. Let us know what you thought uh, about her. We're planning to do a sort of right of reply message at the end of each of our 
mini-series. So if you're fairly up to date uh, with the podcast and you want to disagree, correct, or just chip in with any of the episodes, then please do. So we'll go through all of those after the Margaret of Anjou episode. Uh, if you're listening at a later date, still chipping because we still cover those emails we it's quite fun getting emails you know five years later on something <laughs> anyway you can find us on twitter and instagram to get in touch where we are at rex factor pod like the rex factor podcast facebook page or email rex factor podcast at hotmail.com and also remember to send in your hashtag console cards for us to get an episode image uh, for joan we're going to make our sort of little playing pack of consorts at the end of the series uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use, and you can donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get access to that 100 bonus episodes and counting at www.patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. Uh, we've got some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Lee Rayside, Matthew Turner, Kylie Williams, Luke Harrison, John O'Griffith, Charlotte Falsing, Shelley Urquhart, Rike Engberg, Carl Morris, Richard Mason, Lucy Martin, Jennifer Vincent, Maria Tranta, Mika Riley, Aaron Brooks, Elizabeth Clark, Stuart Crouch, Will Tiernan, Stephen Pitt, Nick Humphrey, Nigel Thomas, Tim Hodgson, Mark Summers, Betsy Summerfeld, and Lindsay Hanna. That's a good haul. Uh, we have some messages from our long ago new Privy Councillors. First up, Mary Calloway. I'm pretty proud of myself for catching up on 10 years in just a few months. I disagree with the person who said skip the first 10 episodes. They are how the legend was made. Oh, that's interesting. I, 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 uh, sorry about the sound. I would say it's probably us, the people that would say Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, confidently Paranoid said, started listening to you guys after I was recommended to you about this time last year and was getting through the backlog steadily until I just binged everything from the English playoffs on in the first few weeks of working from home. Thanks for getting me through lockdown number one, and now I have the privy chamber to get me through lockdown number two. Oh, good. And Mike McNeil keeps short and sweet. Thanks for all the great podcasts. They keep me entertained whilst working night shift. You're welcome. And finally, a consult limerick from Louise Brimacom. Ah, here we go. This is the good stuff. Uh, this time, Philippa of Hainaut. Queen Philippa on her white mare spoke in war to inspire and prepare the troops that she led, or so Foissart said, in truth, she was not even there. <laughs> I don't remember that. Ah, this was, this was where yeah. there was this brilliant story of how the Battle of Neville's Cross... Uh, that Philippa sort of raised the troops and then went out on a white charger and delivered a rousing battle speech um, before the English then defeated the Scots in this magnificent victory. Uh, but oh, right. it turned out that actually Frassart had just basically made it up and she was actually in France at the time. So that's all from us and uh, Joan of Navarre. Our next episode will be the Queen Consort of Henry V, Catherine of Valois. See you next time. Cheerio!